Hello and welcome to While You Were Steeping. I am Hayden Rogers. And I'm Michael Mandelios. So brew a cup of tea and let's get started. First up, we have a guest speaker, and we're very excited to jump straight into this interview. It's quite an in-depth one, so we're going we're gonna to cut straight to our interview with Jane Pettigrew, a teaching historian on tea from the UK. And here with us, we have Jane Pettigrew. Jane, welcome to the show. Good morning, Michael and Hayden. It's lovely to be with you. It seems so strange talking to you so far away while I've been locked (laughs) in my house for the last eight weeks. Absolutely. It's lovely of you to get up so early in the morning as well. I don't know if I would be so brave. It's my normal time. Don't worry. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for coming to join us. Now, we're going to bore you with your own CV, I'm afraid. (laughs) For all of our listeners at home, Uh, Jane is a tea historian with 17 books published on tea, its production, history, culture, and and all kinds of other fun topics uh, surrounding tea as well. She's also received awards for Best Tea Educator, Best Tea Personality, Best Tea Health Advocate, and Best New Product in her publications and books as well. Jane teaches and is, in fact, Director of Studies at the UKT Academy, uh, teaching courses and masterclasses in London and all around the UK. Now, Jane, being a tea historian and expert is a bit of a niche business to fall into. How, How does one end up where you've ended up? Well, you're absolutely right, Michael. I, um, I'm surprised myself, actually, at where I've ended up because I started um, my career as a, a school teacher, teaching French and English, and then I graduated to teaching adults and um, worked abroad, worked in Germany, worked in um, various other countries teaching English. And then I came back into this country and was teaching here, but really wasn't happy. And like so many people's connection with tea, tea actually found me. Yeah. It wasn't me that went looking um, because <laughs> I, I didn't even know in the 1980s that tea was such an important topic and was going to become an even more important topic because I grew up in the 50s in London in a typical English family. Tea was our staple beverage, loose leaf tea. Uh, it was part of our family tradition. You know, we drank tea at breakfast, tea with our afternoon tea. We had afternoon tea parties every weekend with grandparents or friends around the fire in the winter and in the garden in the summer. Absolutely typical of an English family at that time. So I didn't realise just how um important it was going to become to my life later on. So um, uh, because I wanted to change career, I was talking to two friends one day who lived in London. I was outside of London at that time, but we were just chatting about the future and, and things we like to do. And they happened to mention that there was a building in Clapham Common, which is a very interesting part of London. It's a, It's got a hugely mixed demographic, a lot of money, but a lot of poverty, some beautiful old buildings and a huge green open space. 
And the building that they talked to me about as being up for sale, very cheap, was actually facing the beautiful common. And these commons in London will never be built on. There is a law that they are common land. Um, and so we looked at this building. It was really dilapidated. And we thought, oh, well, we could do something with it. It's really cheap. It was five floors. And um, we decided to buy it with our own money and do it up, which we gradually did. But then, of course, we had to think, OK, what are we going to do with this building? And um, these two friends, and myself is two two um, chaps and we had always enjoyed having tea parties together with friends and together and baking and baking cakes and going off to antique markets and hunting down all the 1930s jam pots and milk jugs and sugar bowls and teapots I and mean, it was a real adventure for us we love I, I still live with a with a flat full of deco art deco things and I love that and the 30s was a very important time for tea anyway, because it was very uh, elegant. All the hotels were serving tea at that time in this beautiful deco style. So cut a long story short, we decided to turn this building into a ground floor tea room, which we did. We opened in the summer of 1983. Uh, I had given up a very well-paid job as a lecturer in a college at that time. All my colleagues said, you're absolutely mad. Nobody goes out for tea anymore. And I said, well, we'll see. And the day we opened, we were packed. I mean, it wasn't very big. We eventually extended down to a basement level, but the ground floor was packed in five minutes. And when you started talking to people, they were all really tired of fast food places and plastic top tables and, you know, things that had no elegance or real meaning to them. It was just fast and grab and not very um, pleasant. And so because we did everything in traditional 1930s style and really treated the tea room as our living room, which, of course, is where afternoon tea started it meant that people felt welcome they felt special it had a sense of occasion it was very theatrical in terms of its style and so people came back and back and back and we never did any advertising we just thrived on word of mouth so then at that point I knew nothing about tea I knew how to bake I knew how to <laughs> brew tea I knew how to buy tea we only served black tea in those days we had a few flavored teas and herbals but nothing like today would offer and then I started realizing that we were getting quite a lot of foreign visitors coming in. We had Americans and Japanese, um, some very funny situations because the Japanese at that time did not know what clotted cream was. And mm -hmm. so they actually started ordering their afternoon tea, their scones, clotted cream. And I began to notice they were about to put great dollops of clotted cream in their cups of tea. <laughs> and so I had to run around the shop saying, no, 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 that's not what <laughs> This is what we do. And I would give them little lessons on how we ate our scones. And, and I mean, it's such an eccentric thing to do anyway. Um, and then we had a lot of Americans coming into the shop and they started to say to me, you know, we have uh, expat groups here in, in the south of um, England and several groups in London. Will you come and talk to us about the history of tea drinking in Britain? And I said, yes, fine. And then, of course, I realized I had not a single clue about that topic. So I took myself off to the local library and I started researching searching and it's I think so many people find this once you start exploring the story of tea and find out how far back it goes how it's had such an amazing influence on our on our um, art literature music fashion design of our mm -hmm. houses furniture meal patterns it just you know gradually over time two wars were started because of um, tea between England and, and China and then England and America so hugely influential and I was completely hooked
And then, so of course, I went off and did these talks to these American groups and they absolutely loved it. I was also writing at the time and I'd started writing books that involved a bit of history on tea. And it just went from there. And by the we sold the shop in 1989. We had it for six years. But by that time, we had had visitors from so many countries who wanted to understand why we had this strange ritual of taking this massive great meal in the middle of the afternoon and then went off and had dinner. But also more <laughs> things like... Um, tea dances why were people going ballroom dancing at four o'clock in the afternoon and drinking tea why why did ladies used to dress in really beautiful gowns just for taking tea so so many topics and every time I did a, a talk I was asked to cover a different topic so I had to keep researching which meant my repertoire of, of information just grew and grew and grew and then of course it came to the, the tea itself and I started traveling um John Harney in America had his first ever conference in I think it was probably 1992 it was round about that time and so I went I was invited to that I met all my current tea friends in America um and we realized that people wanted to understand not just the history but the production of tea, the different flavour profiles, where the teas came from, you know, all of that background. And so we started to learn more about that as well. And I, I went to Sri Lanka, then I went to India, I was invited to Brazil, and there's tea in Brazil. And so, you know, my, my travel log completely changed. I, looking back now, I've been in places I would never have dreamt of going to um, mm. for a holiday. But tea takes you to so many, so many places. So, well, you know, it's just kind of rolled on from there. And it's wonderful to hear that that journey has been so varied and so unexpected since we're kind of starting on that very same journey just right now at the very beginning. So lovely, lovely to, to know where, where roughly we're going to be heading. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always, whenever I'm presenting, I always say to people who are new and just have this notion of setting up a tea business or a tea room, I say, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. It's going to be wonderful, but you just don't know how broad this, this world of tea is and how many amazing people you're going to meet and share uh, ideas and enjoyment, etc. with. So it's very, very exciting. We've had a wonderful time reaching out to a whole bunch of local growers and providers just within Australia to begin with. And the vast variety that we're encountering already, every business has its own niche, its own uh, peculiar style and flavour. And it, it's it, very exciting. But yes, overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming. And um, just to, to add to, to that, we've got International Tea Day next Thursday, the 21st of May, designated by the United Nations. So I'm gathering from all our tutors and volunteers and helpers and students here in, in Britain, just saying, give me a quote. What does tea mean to you? And everyone will be different. Uh, some will be just uh, poems. Some will be just little quotes about what it means in their lives. But that's just going to be so interesting reading through those anecdotes. Uh, because it does, as you say, it means different things to different people. And tea connects to so many other different worlds. You've got endless possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I'm actually curious, before we go on to our next question, um, you, you said earlier that you used to only drink black loose leaf tea. In all your experience with all these different varieties of tea, all the different traditions, would you still rate black loose leaf tea as your sort of top tier tea 
or has something taken its place? Can can nothing beat out that sort of tradition? Or I think um, that's very true for a lot of British people and maybe other Western um, people because tea was their favourite beverage um, in Britain, particularly because what we found when we started growing our own tea in India and in Sri Lanka and then in Africa, we produced only black tea because we were using the Assamica branch of the family, uh, the tea plant family. The Assamica doesn't make good green teas; they're too bitter, too strong, and so we went down the black black tea root and so it is very much ingrained in our tradition but I'm it is actually one of our hardest jobs is to get people to try other things but for me personally <laughs> I will drink just about anything you put in front of me and mm. I've learned you know the delicacy of white teas the the lovely cleansing um, and amazing flavor notes that you get from Chinese green teas Japanese green teas I, I drink a complete cross-section I do tend to start the morning with something quite strong but it's not it's not a punchy black I'm drinking Nepalese black at the moment mm. uh, and Yunnan blacks which are are gentler, more mellow, have really lovely, sweet, nutty, oatmeal-y um, notes sometimes, hints of raisins, etc. Um, and so I, I don't use any milk today. And of course, a lot of the traditional black teas that people in Britain drink do drink better with a little milk. They're so strong, so robust. So, you know, <laughs> um, a, a punchy Assam or a punchy uh, low-grown Ceylon or an Uva or um, Dimbala Ceylon tea, they are very strong. Uh, mm. I tend, I only ever drink those if I'm going to put a little bit of milk in, I have to say. And I don't drink dairy. I don't drink any um, milk these days. So for me, mm. I'm all for the more set, subtler ones. I think probably I have switched really away from black and into oolongs because mm. with oolongs you've got such a wide range you've got the beautiful jade oolongs which are so floral and remind you of spring flowers and, and lilies and hyacinths etc right through to the wonderful um, charcoal roasted dark oolongs from Fujian province in China from Guangdong um, amazing and then of course Taiwan is making some incredible really high oxidized um, oolongs these days and they offer you so much in the way of flavor you know, you can never go back to a, a cheap tea bag when you've tasted teas like that. And I, I try to compare it when people don't know what I'm talking about. I try to compare it to wine. Now, we're about 35 years or so behind the um, upward trend that the wine industry has seen. And, you know, if you you may have started off as a student drinking cheap plonk. But once you graduate upwards to something that is better and you don't have to pay a lot more to do that. But once you've done it, you're. Um, palate your tasting buds won't let you go back to the plonk it's just not worth it and they rebel <laughs> once you understand the the range of flavor profiles and the subtlety and the the complexity that you get from good tea which is not that much more expensive but by goodness it's really worth paying that little bit extra you you then you get to the point where if somebody offers you a, a cheap tea bag cup of tea you just say no thanks i'd rather have nothing than that and that's <laughs> you know that that really is the the way people's journey in tea go because i mean why would you drink that cheap stuff it's horrid it doesn't give you anything <laughs> now okay uh, excellent <laughs> a big um a big aspect that we're really looking forward to delving into uh with our exploration in the podcast is of course culture and and the way that culture centers around tea and likewise the way that tea has centered around culture you as you've pursued academic research and as you've ex uh, pursued expanding your knowledge to the breadth that it has reached Obviously, your worldview on tea 
would have moved so far from what might have been a sort of UK-centric experience growing up of tea. What, I guess, what would be the the most defining shift in your cultural experience of tea that you've experienced? Um, well, I think... What's really important and and very interesting for the for the um, increase of interest in in good tea, is not just about me. It's about everybody's experience in the world today. Because uh, twenty years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer, uh, the big cities in most countries were pretty much made up of locals. So the demographic was quite limited. Um, Today, of course, any big city in the world, you have such a cross section of people from Asia. You've got Chinese, Vietnamese, Laotian, um, Afghanistani, Iraqi, Taiwanese. We've got tea companies here in London organized by so many different groups. And that is absolutely brilliant because tea in this country, uh, if you care to take notice of it, um, is no longer about the beautiful little teacup and saucer with roses printed all over it. That is still uh, charming to um, Japanese people, maybe even Chinese people, because, of course, it's the opposite. Things go, things have got so mixed up now that the, the Asians love English culture and the English love Asian culture. But because we now see shops serving tea in Japanese bowls, Chinese bowls, brewing in a gaiwan or a yixing pot, um, or even a Korean covered cup, um, a lot of glassware being used, a lot of beautiful pottery being used, um, different shapes, different sizes, you know, not drinking tea from just a plain old English kitchen mug, but actually thinking more about the vessel that you're brewing in and drinking. I think that's gradually spread through everybody's perception of tea. And thank goodness for it, because it's made our job so much easier uh, to try and wean people off that really old fashioned approach to tea. You know, in the 1990s in this country, tea was dropping off the map. Consumption had gone way down from about 3.5 cups of tea per day to two point something. Oh, massive. it, it was it was really, really drastic. Um, quite a lot of people thought that tea was really boring. It was difficult to brew. It was a drink for old ladies. You know, all the things that have really um, have affected the market over, over the world. But then suddenly we got this. We got two things that mattered. First of all, the health message which has driven the market. And even if people don't understand the science and why tea is good for you, they do have that message firmly in their heads. And so everybody's drinking more tea. But the way in which they drink it, the understanding of, of where it comes from and, and how it's been made and why it's it's got this flavour profile, etc., that has changed very gradually people's perception. And it just adds a sense of connection you know i say to people every time you drink a cup of tea you are actually connecting yourself back five thousand years and to almost every other country in the world because it turns into a great big spider's web you're just connected and it becomes Mm. you become part of the tea family um and the understanding of the cultural background is really worth exploring because it's usually absolutely fascinating Mm. speaking of the the history that you know, far-reaching history of tea. Do you think that you could uh, sort of summarise in, in maybe a few points the key historical moments for tea? Oh, golly, yes, um, probably. Let's have a go. Um, 
So obviously the first major point is the discovery of tea back in China um, and the discovery of its health benefits. So we've been told, we've always been told that's about 5,000 years ago and stories about Shen Nong, the herbalist, who we don't really think is a real person, but a legendary <laughs> mythical character. But of course, what's important is that tea became well known because of its health benefits. So um, then we start getting the uh, migration of tea out of China uh, in the second, third century AD along the Silk Road. So tea travels right across to Europe um, and in the other direction in the 6th century into Korea and the 9th century into Japan. Um, the, the route along the Silk Road is more about trade and exchanging uh, tea as money, if you like, for other goods. In the other direction uh, to the east, it was more about Buddhist um, uh, monks and priests learning traveling to China to study and, of course, coming across tea and then taking tea back to their own countries. So that migration um, was, was steady in that part of the world. But then, of course, we still didn't know about tea. The turning point for Europe is 1610, when the first record of tea coming into Europe with the Dutch and the Portuguese is very important. And the Portuguese gradually lost their power as uh, uh, trading power. They were sort of pushed out by the Chinese from Macau Island, where they'd been trading. And the Dutch were really forceful in those um, sea routes and became very important for bringing back tea into Europe. They were then also very good at re-exporting tea into Germany, into France, and eventually, 40 years later, into London. So then for us, the turning point is the mid to late 1650s, when tea is first noted as having been uh, available for sale in coffee houses and by apothecaries or um, pharmacies. Um, so that's those are the early markers, I suppose. And then um, I suppose it begins to change when uh, working classes as well as royal families, aristocrats start to drink tea. So tea becomes, it filters down through the population, putting more pressure on, on um, acquiring our tea. The next turning point for us is the 1830s when we start growing our own tea in Assam. Um, and this is always such an interesting story because the East India Company had round about the 1760s started understanding that we needed to become self-sufficient in tea and had sort of vaguely thought about experimenting, but they never did anything about it because they were getting so rich trading tea from China into, uh, into London. They had the monopoly till 1834. So they were really not very fussed. But then, of course, the political situation between China and Britain started to get quite difficult with the opium, the trading of opium. Um, but it's because of opium that we found tea growing in the Assam jungles um, because the East India Company had got up into Assam. They'd been um, starting to grow and cultivate and, and sell opium. But then, of course, they were exploring and child, um uh, Charles Bruce and, and Robert Bruce actually discovered the plant in the jungle. Gradually, that in, uh, information and news got to the East India Company and they started experimenting. But it's not starting to grow until 1834, 35, not really. So 1838 um, and the arrival of tea into London in January 1839 and the beginning of the Opium Wars absolutely coincide. Just to be clear... For our listeners, you're not suggesting the use of opium to pursue the discovery of tea. I don't. Excellent. Just to just to be certain on that one. No, but it's a very interesting. You know, it's because of that cultivation of that of that crop um, that we actually were in Assam exploring. The mercenaries working for the East India Company were going off exploring, found the plant, 
found that the locals had been drinking it, possibly even eating it. And so, you know, we obviously just saw this as an opportunity, changed our tea history. Um, and then, of course, we moved into Darjeeling and the south of India and then into Sri Lanka. And all of the tea that we grew in those countries was black tea. And that is also a, an important trend. Um, I think the next marker is the uh, invention of the paper tea bag in 1930. The invention of CTC manufacture, which chops the tea up into tea bag particles. But it also means that the tea bag became so popular that the demand for tea was growing and the uh, tea bagging companies could not get enough small particles. So CTC was invented, but then we needed to grow more tea in order to make more tea for the tea bags. And that's when we expanded into East Africa. So mm -hmm. Kenya. Tanzania, Malawi, um, what was Rhodesia and then became Zimbabwe. All of those countries down the east side of um, Africa were proven to be brilliant for growing tea. All Well, in some countries, in Kenya, Rwanda, Burundi, right through the year. So they can churn out lots and lots of tea. So Africa then developed, um, still only really produces the majority of uh, tea bag black tea, but it's changing because the market is changing. Um, and so I suppose those are the most important markers in terms of tea itself. We mm -hmm. have other markers in terms of afternoon tea and the development of the cultural changes that we see. But that's another whole story. That's a good. <laughs> well, we've, we've definitely got a lot to look into as, as we move forward, for sure. We were wondering if you had a just like, I mean, you already actually you did regale us with a sort of wild tea tale but we were wondering if there is a, an especially uh, bizarre or interesting or just funny story you have related to your uh, studies and travels with tea maybe something smaller than tea changing your entire life <laughs> I, I, I think really it's really hard to pick one because every journey you make in tea to different tea producing regions is either absolutely inspirational and wonderful or, or you know, you have funny things happening. I do remember my first trip to Darjeeling um, where you're driving on the little windy mountain roads in the middle of the night with headlights on little narrow jeeps being absolutely scared rigid. Um, that's always a hairy journey, but <laughs> worth it, obviously. Um, and no, I, I, I don't think there's anything particularly funny. There's just lots of moments which were, oh, just so um, emotional and uplifting and rewarding. You know, that making tea in Scotland last year with my friend Beverly Wainwright. She's got she she <laughs> has a little factory there. You know, that's pretty special to go to Scotland where the growing season is really short and the weather is against the growers all the time. And actually to make black tea from sinensis plants and asamica plants and end up with something absolutely wonderful. That was pretty special. I always, when people ask me for my most specialty example, I do always remember my trip up the mountains outside Taipei in Taiwan to an organic tea garden that was um, run by monks. Uh, you know, organic tea gardens often look quite untidy because there's a lot of weeds and it's really hard work. But of course, when you arrive, uh, as with every tea garden, there's a great big poster up saying, welcome, Jane Pettigrew. And you just feel so special. But then to, to walk around this lovely organic garden, some of us, some were driven, some walked. But the monks actually tucked their robes up into their, their waist and got on quad bikes and rode around the garden on quad bikes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so bizarre. But they were wonderful. There were only a, a few of them, probably about five or six monks, and the, and the, the head monk 
And the wonderful thing about it was that not only did they work organically, but they had a temple in their main building and they had quite a large room and they had actually created a whole new um, addition to the Taiwanese tea ceremony. Taiwanese, Chinese, they're very similar. And they wanted to serve the tea which grows above the ground with some food that grows below the ground. So they'd chosen peanuts, which of course grow mm. on these long trailers under the ground, and they roasted the peanuts and served them in little dishes. So the tea, the oolong tea that they made, and these beautiful, I, I, I'm not a great lover of peanuts, but these were really, really special. And they roasted them there and then, and then served them to us. And it was, it was a real gong fu ceremony. But then having had the ceremony, we sat drinking more tea, sitting in the window, looking out across the valley to the, the neighboring mountain range, which as you looked at it in the in the the dusk light it was just the sun had gone down it was light but still you know just disappearing the profile of that mountain range is a sleeping buddha you know oh, like and, oh it was just heavenly i mean you you didn't need to speak you just knew you'd made friends and you just sat there enjoying the tea and enjoying the view that was very very special but that there are so cool. many stories like that so many yeah, the- Sounds absolutely beautiful. Is there one place you've travelled not on business, not in relation to tea, that you've absolutely adored? Um, Yeah, uh, well, I was there for tea, but I really enjoyed it. I would go back with um, Vietnam, Hanoi. I loved Hanoi. You know, I was there, we were there just before Tet, New Year. And I don't know whether you know this, but uh, Vietnamese people decorate their houses at New Year with kumquat trees and branches Mm -hmm. of plum blossom. And the kumquat trees are grown. Everybody orders their kumquat tree and they go and collect them at the appropriate moment a couple of days before. But, of course, every, I don't know whether it's still the same. This is a few years ago. But everybody drove little uh, lightweight motorbikes uh, and they move at about 20 miles an hour. But the whole mm. city just moves. It's mm. like a, a mm. constant movement of motorbikes. So when they want to go and collect their kumquat tree, they drive down to the garden where they've been grown. And a kumquat tree for Tet has got to have green leaves, flowers, unripe fruit and ripe fruit the orange fruit so it's a beautiful sight and they when they bought it when they paid for it it's actually um put into a big round low planter um porcelain planter which is quite big and then they put that on the back of their bike and they, they then can't sit up straight because the tree's in the way so they, they have to ride forward and the whole of hanoi was just one moving <laughs> Oh it was goodness. incredible. I mean, they do put everything on their motorbikes. Yes. Um, I, so interesting. I, I've been to Vietnam. Yeah, I've been to Vietnam as well. So that absolutely I rings love the a bell. Food. Yeah, I oh, love the food. Yeah. I love the people. I loved sitting on street corners, drinking tea with them in the evenings before going for a foot massage. Mm. I mean, it is, it is the most benign city. And when you think about their history, it's quite extraordinary that they mm. are just such calm, lovely, giving, kind people. So I was there. We were exploring tea right up on the Chinese border. But yeah. um, to Hanoi itself, to me, that will always stay in my memory. I loved it. Did you ever get on the back of one of those motorcycles? No, but I did carry, you know, the pole that you could put across your shoulder for carrying goods. That yeah. was work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't go on the back of a motorbike. I prefer to have my feet on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've been an absolute font of information, which comes as a surprise to none of us, given your extensive history and qualifications. Before we let you go, we do have one last burning question. 
if you were to tune in to a podcast with two amateur tea enthusiasts reviewing local teas, what would be the absolute crucial details you would want to hear in a review of those teas? How would you want to hear those teas encapsulated and described? Oh, my goodness. Um, It's very hard to do in a few words, but I would want to know what type of tea it was green, oolong, black, whatever. I would want to know a little bit about where it was grown and maybe um, a little bit about the grower and um, what they do, because I think the stories are really important. But then I would like to know the flavour profile. I would like to know what the leaf, I mean, a photograph of the leaf is always great, but if not, the description. Um, And then some some really, really um, evocative flavour notes, not just this is a black tea and it's really strong, but this black tea has (laughs) has hints of apricots and peaches. Uh, and on the lower notes, you might find licorice and, and charcoal. And I mean, just words that make you really want to drink that tea. It's something we do at Tea Academy with our um, sommelier students. We actually do a lot of uh, work. We spend a lot of time actually describing um, teas, talking about the vocabulary you need. You know, what are you going to look at? You're going to look at the dry leaf, you're going to look at the liquor, and you're going to look at the wet leaf. And describing all three things really helps people to actually want to buy and drink those teas. Again, we take our example from the wine trade. There was a time when nobody knew anything about wine unless you were terribly wealthy or had your own vineyard. Um, They were described really by region, pretty much. But today, the tasting notes, you know, this tea is full of black cherries and and blackberries with a hint of this. And I mean, you know whether you want to drink that tea. And that's what we've got to do, uh, that wine rather, that's what we've got to do with tea. We've got to make it really um, seductive, if you like, evocative, and make people understand that it's not just a cup of tea. It's so much more. Mm. Brilliant. I hope you don't mind that we've anointed you our official godmother of tea, and we'd (laughs) love to have you back. Heaven knows we'll definitely be wanting to ask a million more questions further (laughs) down the line. But for now, we'll definitely let you go. Thank you so much to Jane Pettigrew for coming and joining us. Thank you both of you. And good luck with everything. I look forward to hearing more about how you get on. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you very much. Stay safe and well. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. So, how was that, Hayden? That was fantastic. I am just like really inspired and a little now. overwhelmed and a little over- i did not realize <laughs> really what we were getting ourselves into but there is a lot to explore here yeah i i, I think i kind of knew but it, it's the, the second you start getting all of that really specific specific <laughs> information i just feel like there's a there's a big wall to climb up now yeah yeah which is exciting though very exciting so should we get into reviewing our first teas? yes let's okay fabulous our first tea has been sent to us from Elmstock, which is a uh, an Australian tea provider in Balcatta in uh, Western Australia, and been sent to us by the lovely Terry Dow, uh, who is one of the proprietors over there at Elmstock. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Terry's been wonderful as well. He's been um, an absolute joy to chat with, and he sent us a whole bunch of adorable little notes when he sent us the teas to try. So we're very excited straight off the bat. He's he's won us over. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> but don't worry. We, our, our review will not be compromised or biased by the fabulousness of Terry. We will still be as ruthless as we possibly can be. 
with tea. So Hayden, do you want to tell us a little bit about this tea? Yes. Okay. So the tea we're trying today is called Great Grandfather's Tea. Um, so it is a black single estate tea from the Dimbula district of Sri Lanka. Um, but the a tea originally comes from the Diagama estate, um, started in the 1880s by the great-grandfather of the owner of Elmstock Tea. So that's why it's called Great-Grandfather's Tea. I'm just, like, actually learning this as I'm speaking, and it's And that's really very cute. fitting leading into our origin stories episode next week as well, because this is um, a lovely little origin story for this tea and also for the Elmstock company. Absolutely. So it's, it's a black tea, as we've said. Um, looking at it, it's it's very finely sort of... I guess ground is yes, very fine. Um, which I have seen before. Only this, like this, sort of looks like a, a breakfast tea level of of intensity. So when you when you grind a tea leaf to a smaller size, um, you get a more intense flavour, um, and because there's just more surface area to work for the water to work on. Uh, there, I've only seen probably like one tea that has been ground smaller than this in my life. So that's pretty. That's saying something. You've yeah. seen a lot of teas in your day. <laughs> okay. And we brewed this for a solid five minutes at 100 degrees. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely, strong black tea. So you, you definitely want to give it a good solid brew. Um, shall we have a taste? Yes. Let's look. So we haven't tasted this yet. Um, we're doing our uh, initial impressions immediately on this podcast. So you get the full, honest experience. Um, and we're going to try this tea firstly without milk, and then we're going to both try it with milk. Uh, so just because we both drink our black tea usually with with milk. So we, we're just going to see how that goes. Mine is still quite hot, but let's see. Let's go. Uh, are we doing it? Are we tasting? It's actually, it's very, mine is very hot. <laughs> okay. ASMR. Oh, wow. Mm. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. Okay, so. Mm. Okay, so first thought off the bat is that it's much smoother than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I was expecting a really kind of coarse, dark, tanniny kind of, based on how, firstly, how black it came out the second, um, the second I dropped my infuser into the hot water, it, the tea went a very, very dark shade of brown within a matter of a second or two. So I really thought that this was going to be a very strong, almost overpowering tea. Um, but it's very smooth. It is smooth. And I, I mean, I do get, I do get that tanniny, like it is intense, like it is very black tea. But it is, you're right, it's quite smooth. I think this is going to go really nicely with milk, I have to say. Me too. And you know what? You can almost smell cinnamon in cinnamon. the tea. You, you can't yes. actually really, like, taste it so much, but you can kind of smell it. No, no, I, I see that. I see that. Um, oh, this is, this is a problem because we promised that we were going to be brutal and savage, but I really like this. <laughs> uh- <laughs> well, I mean, if it's genuine. Yeah. Um. So, Michael and I both put plant-based milks in our tea. Uh, I do soy milk and Michael does oat milk. Yes. So, that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. And I I do sometimes drink uh, normal, you know, full cream milk, but I've started kind of um, 
easing out of it in my life. So I do drink a lot of oat milk now. Uh, for those of you who do drink um, non-dairy milks, I would suggest making sure that you give the carton, whether it's soy milk or oat milk, a good little vigorous shake before you pour your milk, just to give it that nice bit of aeration as it goes in. It'll help it uh, stir in better, make it a little bit less separated. And also just give it a little bit of, as I said, air as well, which is always nice. Okay, so I've added my milk. I guess we should talk, we could talk slightly about why we ch- we've chosen the milks we've chosen. I, yeah. I like soy milk because I find it, I mean, it was just the one that I, I could easily transfer to. I got used to it because uh, the tea too I used to work at, they only put soy milk in any milk-based tea because of allergies. Right. And um, so I got used to having it with tea. And I, I just find soy milk quite creamy. I find it like sort of the creamiest plant-based milk. Interesting. The reason I prefer oat milk uh, to soy or almond milk is that I find it's the one that is most like dairy milk in that it doesn't change the flavor of what you're putting it into too much. I find that soy always makes something still taste like soy and almond, especially in, in tea or coffee, um, you, you really do get that almond flavor through. Whereas what I like about oat is that it, it dilutes the flavor of, in this case, the tea, um, but it doesn't overpower it with any, any new flavors. Um, now when you add milk to yours, how, 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 uh, light do you go with your tea, Hayden? Mine's currently kind of a a medium brown, I'd say. It's definitely not like a light tan and it's certainly not grey or cream. Yeah, I think I'm pretty liberal with milk, but this tea is pretty dark. So we're sitting at about like a, a medium brown here as well. Mm. Okay. okay. I'm going to try Shall it with we? milk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that it's we're biased because this is how we drink black tea, but... It's so nice with milk. Yeah, it is. No, and and that's, you know, I, I don't really have the fortitude to drink an entire cup of tea black for sure. Um, but, yeah, no, it 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 just works nicely. It, um, it brings out mm. the flavours that are already in the tea. It complements the milk. Mm-hmm. It... Yeah, and I can see if you have sugar or sweetener in your tea, it would also do a treat. This would become, like, quite... It's already become quite, like, malty even. Ooh, adding that's a good word. Oh, see, <laughs> this is why you're the food connoisseur. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's gorgeous. What I think I'm, I'm really glad that we started with a nice, straightforward tea as well. This is a really good classic tea. If you're, if you're a big fan of your, of your traditional black tea, I would, I would very solidly recommend this one. Mm. And we know how to talk about this sort of tea. We'll, we'll see how we go in next episode with some more uh, interesting teas. Not that this isn't interesting, but... Now, the fabulous Terry from Elmstock has actually provided us with a total of 12 packets of Elmstock tea of a variety of flavours that we're going to continue reviewing over the next few weeks. So, we have some giveaways. That's right. Uh, this week, we are going to give away two... Not one, but two packets of this great grandfather's tea. Um, so you can give it a try at your at home as well. Um, all you have to do to enter is go to our Instagram, uh, which is going to be Steeping Podcast, and we want you to on your story share a photo of your favourite tea mug 
So whatever tea, mug, cup uh, that you prefer to have your cup of tea out of. We all have one. It's all something we have. Michael and I have will post our photos of our favorite mugs as well. Um, I'm drinking from mine right now. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm drinking from my little sample cups. Um, and yeah, just post a picture of your favorite tea mug on your story or, or on your uh, main feed, if you, if you so wish, and tag at Steeping Podcast. And you're going to the, uh, the draw to win one of two packets of Great Grandfather's Tea from Elmstock. And then we'll notify you if you've won and we'll arrange delivery. Amazing. Well, that brings us to the end of our uh, episode for this week. Michael, can you tell us a bit about where we can learn more about Jane's work? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in checking out Jane Pettigrew after her fabulous interview with us today, head to janepettigrew.com. That's P-E-T-T-I-G-R-E-W. Or you can head to the UKT Academy, which is uktacademy.co.uk. They've got a whole bunch of fabulous online courses, which is great for this uh, time in the world. And of course, they do also have their Tea Master and Tea Sommelier courses as well, which I am very tempted to jump in on if we can't drain Jane of her knowledge ourselves. (laughs) As am I. I'd love to be a Tea Sommelier. (laughs) And of course, you can check us out on Instagram. I'm Michael Mandelios on Instagram. And I'm Hayden Rogers on Instagram. Have a fabulous week and we'll catch you soon. While You Were Steeping is a That's Not Canon Productions podcast. For more information, head to that'snotcanon.com. Canon with one N.